Welcome, everybody. We are the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. I am your host, Moses Soria, and with me is no one. Today is the Lone Wolf episode where you guys are unfortunately stuck with me as I continue talking about vampire things. You know, that didn't fit in uh, last week's episode, but that I thought were fun nonetheless. As you guys may or may not know, you know, the guys are busy with school as my brother is a full-time student and Achi is uh, an elementary teacher. So I decided instead of leaving you guys hanging for almost a month with no content, why not just do a short episode and continue with, you know, Aubrey Sherman's Vampires, the Myths, Legends, and Lore. So today's episode will be revolving around vampires from around the world and vampire hunters. But don't worry, the guys will be back for our next episode as we revisit an old topic and dive into the Bethlehem Royal Hospital. You know, that we lightly touched up on on our episode 2 Insane Asylum episode. So, uh, guys, sit back and um, hope you enjoy the show. He's talking and I'm not and I'm just... And then I'm talking. <laughs> no, but wait, wait! I have something for him. Boom! You get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales podcast. Concentrate on the news. That's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong with my. I wasn't always enamored with vampires. At one point, I was really into werewolves, and that was mostly due to R.L. Stein's iconic book series Goosebumps, specifically the book The Werewolf of Fever Swamp. I was introduced to R.L. Stein by my older cousin Fernando early on, who's now a D&D compatriot of mine and a supporter of this podcast. When I was younger, I was that annoying kid who was the youngest of all his cousins, so I would want to copy what they were doing. I must have been no older than five when I remember my cousin Fernando receiving a mail order package from Goosebumps, where he got all this cool Goosebump gear. So naturally, I gravitated toward whatever Fernando was doing and ordered my first Goosebump book through the school fair, The Werewolf of Fever Swamp. Vampires, to me, always seemed to pale in comparison to the other famous monsters. They weren't as cool as werewolves. The mummy always seemed scarier and Frankenstein was this big brute that I assumed would just mop the floor with Dracula. At this point in my life, I thought all vampires were Dracula. But it wasn't until a Spanish news channel called Primer Impacto changed my perception of them. They were covering a Chupacabra story, and in it, I remember whoever they were interviewing called it a vampire, and that lingered with me for a while. A few days later, I was at guitar practice. I was taking lessons from a neighbor, Ricky, when his mom came in talking about the Chupacabra in Puerto Rico, and she kept referring to it as a vampiro, which is Spanish for vampire. I remember laughing, telling them it couldn't be a vampire because all the accounts described the Chupacabra as a creature and not a man. Remember, I thought all vampires were Dracula and Bela Lugosi was my only reference. Ricky's mom told me that vampires come in all different shapes and sizes, and proceeded to tell me about the Trawalpuchi which is an Aztec shape-shifting female vampire which feeds on the life of young infants. That blew my mind and instantly changed what vampires were to me at that point. I must have been no older than 12 and at that point the only thing that I really gave a shit about was Pokemon and guitar. And my Pokemon obsession was the reason why my perception of vampires changed. I no longer saw vampires as old white dudes sucking the blood out of sleeping women but began seeing them 
and to use a Pokemon term, as a type. And by that I mean, in Pokemon, there are different monsters that are classed under a banner that we call types. There are all sorts of types, like electric, water, fire, grass, bug, flying, psychic types. Eventually they would expand on these and add more, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. And under each type, you would find a large variety of Pokemon different from the next. Like for example, my favorite Pokemon back then was Arcanine, a fire type, and he was this large, majestic dog. But not all fire types were dogs. There was Charizard, who looked like a dragon. There was the legendary Moltres, a large bird covered in flames. There was Rapidash, the fire horse, and then there was Ninetales, the nine-tailed white fox Pokemon. And this is how I saw vampires and how it broke down in my head. Vampire was the type, like fire, and the Trawalpuchi was a Pokemon, like Arcanine. And then I began looking into the different kinds of vampires trying to learn all I could about them. And this is how I wanted to start this episode, talking about vampires from around the world, specifically vampires from the UK, North and South America. But Aubrey Sherman, the author of Vampires, The Myths, Legends and Lore, does a fantastic job about covering different vampires from around the world. She talks about Greek, Slavic, Romanian, and German vampires. She covers vampires of the Far East from China, Japan, and even India, like the Bhutan Vitalas. You know, but enough about me and my weird Pokemon comparisons. Let's get to talking about the vampires from around the world. Although tales of vampirism in the United Kingdom in modern times concentrate primarily on the popular Eastern European bloodsuckers, during the 11th and 12th centuries, the British Isles developed their own ghoulish mythologies, like the Welsh Hag. The Hag in Welsh folklore is a female demon who can take on the form of a young maiden, a mature matron, or an ugly crone. The old crone is the most feared because she signifies impending death and ruin and is generally seen as the symbol of a washerwoman who rinses blood-soaked clothing in streams. Those who run across her are doomed to a brutal fate. Another is the Goraga Ribbon. The Goraga Ribbon is another form of a hideously aged woman who can be seen at crossroads threatening travelers, or who's seen only in brief glimpses beside streams and ponds. The whale of the Goraga Ribbon is believed to signal impending death, and she's sometimes known to attack sleeping children, or the defenseless bedridden to drain their blood, weakening the victims until they perish. Evidence of her visitations is seen in the dried blood that clings to her mouth. It's believed that healthy folks can drive off the Goraga Ribbon with brute force. Ireland seems to have imbued many writers with the love of the supernatural. Bram Stoker, author of Dracula, and the ghost story writer Joseph Sheridan Lafanu. They both called the Emerald Island home. They had a variety of legends on which to draw, but one of the best known is that of the Darog duo, aka the Red Bloodsucker. Centuries ago, a beautiful young woman from a good family fell in love with a peasant boy. Her family, not surprisingly, opposed the match and insisted she marry an older man from her own social class. Her father forced her into the unwanted marriage, and she died shortly after. 
from a broken heart, or from the violence of her British husband. None mourned her except the peasant boy, who had been her true love. But on her deathbed, she vowed vengeance against those who had wronged her. After death, she arose from the grave and visited the house wherein her father was sleeping. She bent over him and sucked the life from his lips. Next, she went to the home of her husband, where he lay sleeping with his new wife. In her anger, she attacked them and drained their bodies of their blood. Now bloodlust is upon her, and each night she rises from a grave to feed her insatiable hunger. The only way to stop her is to pile stones on her grave, like my brother mentioned in the previous episode, thus preventing her from ever leaving it. Another Irish legend tells the story of the Aurpach, a dwarf in the parish of Arafel and Derry. The dwarf was a great magician, but he was also a tyrant who terrorized the people of the countryside. A neighboring chieftain, Fionn MacCumhaugh, slew the dwarf, but he rose from the dead and ranged across the land, drinking the blood of his victims. MacCumhaugh killed him a second time, and then a third and still the magician rose from his grave. Finally, Matt Cumhale killed him with a sword made from yew tree. The hour pack was buried upside down. His grave was surrounded by thorn bushes, and a large stone was placed on top of it. This seems to have done the trick, and Ireland was free from his ravages. Some literary historians have suggested that Bram Stoker found inspiration for the story of the blood-drinking Dracula in this Irish legend. In Berwick, in the north of England, a story was passed down from the Middle Ages about a local man who died, possibly of the plague, and whose spirit wandered the town, spreading disease and fear. He was accompanied by a pack of spectral hounds whose mournful howling announced his presence. The townsfolk eventually dug up his body from where he had been buried on unconsecrated ground, cut it to pieces, and burnt it. A similar corpse burning took place in Melrose, Scotland, to stop the depredations of a vampire. At Crogling Range in Cumberland, a vampire story was recorded by writer Augustine Hare in the 19th century. It concerned a woman and her two brothers who rented an old house. One night, as they slept, the woman was awakened by a strange creature at her window with a brown face and flaming eyes. It came into the room, fastened on her throat, and drank her blood. The three people fled the house for a time, but when they returned, so did the vampire. One of the brothers shot it in the leg and they were able to trace it to a vault in the local cemetery. There, they discovered it sleeping in its coffin and burned it. Highgate Cemetery in London is one of the most famous burial sites in the United Kingdom, being the resting place of such notable figures as George Eliot, Christina Rossetti, and Karl Marx. In 1963, People walking by its gates after dark reported seeing a phantom roaming the grounds. 
shortly after. The carcasses of several animals drained of their blood were found. Other sightings were reported, and in one case, a young girl actually reported being attacked by a vampire. Fortunately for her, she was rescued before she was bitten. The sightings gradually died away in the 1970s, perhaps connected to the renovation of the cemetery, which today is a major London tourist attraction. Scotland, land of lonely moors and forbidden mountains where castles brood over the sullen waters of windless locks, has its own impressive catalogue of vampire lore. In Glamis Castle in Scotland, sometimes called the most haunted castle in all of the United Kingdom, layers of the castle are rumored to guard a terrible secret, the birth of a vampire child into the family. The child was kept secret in a hidden room in the castle and never seen by outsiders. Some say that a vampire child is born into each successive generation of the holders of this castle. A related story says that several hundred years ago, a servant was found crouched over a body, drinking its blood. She was walled up in a room within the castle and vanished from human sight, though not from memory. More recently, at Blair Athol in the 1920s, two poachers resting from their nightly labors reported being attacked by some undescribed creature that drank blood from each of them. They successfully fought it off, but the story has served as a warning to travelers who avoid being caught in the open of the highlands after dark. In the William Brian House, a hotel in Inverleith, near Edinburgh, during the winter of 1915-1916, staff and visitors were terrified by an apparition that they said bore an unmistakable air of evil. A medical student, Andrew Muir, volunteered to investigate the matter. Muir asked to spend the night alone in the room where the apparition had been seen. Reluctantly, the house's owners agreed but gave him a bell he could ring in case of alarm. Several hours after he shut himself in the room, listeners heard the frantic ringing of the bell, accompanied by a horrid scream. Rushing into the room, they found the body of the unfortunate medical student slumped in his chair, dead. The body bore puncture wounds to the throat and shoulder. The murder was never solved, but later investigators uncovered the story of the house's former owner, a man named Willem Brian. Before he died, Brian gave instructions that his grave was to be 40 feet deep and the coffin was to be kept secret, possibly because he feared what he might do if he escaped from the grave. Though apparently glamorous, especially if one has a supply of modern weaponry, vampire hunting is not for the faint of heart. To fight evil is to dive into the abyss, to understand what one is fighting, and hopefully to emerge unscathed. 
We'll examine the vampire hunters of history, the tools of the trade, and famous vampirologists whose insights light where there is perennial darkness. In the vampire realm, there is but one name that embodies the relentless vampire hunter, Van Helsing. While Dracula himself is one of the most popular literary characters in history, he would be nothing without an antagonist to expose his origins and weakness and work to destroy him using intellect, science, religion, psychology, and weaponry. As far as heroes go, one finds the Dutch professor all the ingredients for a successful slayer of monsters. For all the wonderful embellishments that film and fiction have added to the vampire legacy, the basics all hark back to Stroker and his scholarly hero. Perhaps Van Helsing ultimately is best described by Dr. Seward, who states that his mentor possesses an iron nerve, a temper of the icebrook and indomitable resolution, self-command and toleration that exalted from virtues to blessings and the kindest and truest heart that beats. These form his equipment and for the noble work that he is doing for mankind, work both in theory and practice for his views are as wide as his all-embracing sympathy. That is the description of a true hero, one who is able to forego the rationality of humanity in order to save it from an evil it doesn't even realize it exists. Through the long history of vampirism and folklore, particularly in the Slavic regions of Eastern Europe, there are numerous references to those rare individuals who possess the mysterious knowledge to detect and dispatch suspected vampires. Although there is a common belief, particularly in our relatively informed modern age, that those who are said to have the ability to see and kill vampires were simply charlatans bent on earning a few kopecks, which is Russian currency, through the fears and ignorance of their neighbors, there's little evidence, anecdotal or otherwise, that this was the case. A significant aspect of vampire hunting is that there is often little visible evidence that slayers have indeed been successful in their efforts. Slavic vampire hunters were rarely expected to destroy a vampire that was actively on the prowl, and virtually all suspected were terminated as they slept in their graves. Once dispatched, the corpses often crumbled to dust. Sometimes vampire slayers served to calm the fears of those being attacked. This was the case with the infamous Medvigia vampires of the 1720s, where frightened villagers attributed every strange happenstance in the village to the workings of the undead. By hiring a professional vampire hunter to drive a stake into the corpse of the most likely, usually the most recently deceased suspect, fears would abate. Odd sounds were just the wind and life would return to normal as the hunter's mission was accomplished. In Slavic cultures, the vampire hunters was usually marked in some fashion to differentiate him from the rest of society. Most common of these marks was the Sabotnik, those people born on a Saturday, the traditional Jewish Sabbath, and a day that is ripe with taboos. Although the Christian Orthodox Church differentiated itself early on from Judaism by declaring Sunday the Sabbath, the taboos of Saturdays became entrenched in tradition and spread through much of Eastern Europe. Sabotniks were considered to be tainted with associations to demonic forces and therefore held supernatural powers to detect evil. Another common marking of the destined vampire hunter or seer was to be born of the sexual union between a widow and deceased husband who had become a vampire. Such individuals were regionally known as Glogovs, Vampirdizi, 
Uperari, and Vampirovici. And the tribute with much the same abilities to detect and destroy evil as the Subotniks, and for the same reasons, they shared supernatural powers with the undead. One of the most intriguing and continuing mysteries of the 20th century involves the manufacture and sale of vampiric killing kits, attributed to a Professor Ernst Blomberg of Germany, with antique percussion-style pistols made by gunsmith Nicholas Plomder of Liege, supposedly dating from the late 1800s. A number of Blomberg's kits have turned up in recent years, and some have sold for a pretty astonishing amounts, including one that went for $12,000 in 2003. The kit consisted of a walnut box with a hinged lid, housing an antique pistol, 10 silver bullets, a wooden stake, and mallet, crucifix, rosary, and several vials of garlic powder and various demon thorn serums. The authenticity of Professor Bromberg's kits have come under a fair amount of scrutiny in recent years with very few reliable results and even less hard evidence that he even existed. There is, however, anecdotal evidence that vampire killing kits became popular in England and Western Europe soon after the release of Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. These were supposedly made for nervous travelers to Eastern Europe, but more likely were purchased as souvenirs. Nevertheless, most of those kits were well made and expensive, designed for the well-to-do who had a penchant for unusual contemporary novelties. Early vampire hunters in Eastern Europe made do with shovels, hand-carved wooden stakes and a mallet, and an axe for decapitating the unsuspecting dead. The self-respecting vampire hunter of today, though, wouldn't be caught dead without an arsenal of demon dispatching tools close at hand. If you're planning on embarking on a career in slaying, as I have most recently done, there are a few mandatory items you'll need to assemble. Such as 1. A wooden box preferably made of ash or hawthorn wood with a cross carved into the lid. 2. Stakes Just about any stake or shot pointed object should suffice, but according to lore, any local hardwood such as ash, hawthorn, juniper, wild rose, white thorn, or buckthorn is ideal. In some cases, silver stakes can also prove useful depending on the type of revenant you're facing. 3. Crosses or crucifixes Keeping in line with your wooden box and stakes, crosses or crucifixes should be made out of ash or hawthorn wood. 4. Holy water. Most vampire hunters carry holy water around in vials or flasks. The supply can be replaced or augmented by the local priest. 5. Fire. Traditional vampire hunters rely on matches, candles, and torches. A few lighters and maybe a small blowtorch should seem a bit more reliable though. 6. Mirrors Mirrors are helpful both for detecting vampires since they cast no reflection and for focusing sunlight on them. 7. Garlic Probably the most common standby, vampires hate garlic with a passion. And 8. The Bible Threatening a vampire with the holy book while reading off a few choice verses is a standard vampire hunter tactic. Just hope he's not a Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, or an atheistic vampire. Several items that you may have around the house can, in many cases, repel bloodsuckers. Garlic, salt, 
candles, incense, and bells, among other items, have in the past been proven effective against vampires. Some of these methods are steeped in folklore and used by early writers of vampire fiction such as John Polidori, James Malcolm Reamer, Joseph Sheridan Lafanu, and of course, Bram Stoker. Garlic is one of the most common items used to ward off the vampire's bite and a protection against evil that's existed since ancient times. A member of the Lily family, garlic contains natural healing powers and has long been used for medicinal and healing purposes as well as herbal uses. In much of folklore and in Stroker's Dracula, a vampire's mouth is stuffed with garlic after beheading. Similarly, a corpse's mouth is filled with garlic to prevent it joining the undead. In Dracula, Van Helsing fills Lucy's room with garlic, flowers, and bulbs, even rubbing it all over the door and fireplace to keep Dracula from entering. Vampiric folklore is rife with individuals making use of garlic as a repellent. Given that a vampire's senses are heightened, particularly its vision, hearing, and smell, it stands to reason that garlic, whether worn, rubbed, or liquefied, would be enough to keep the undead at bay. During times of plague, it was often believed that smells could not only ward off evil and the stench of death, but disease as well. In light of the fact that vampirism in itself is often considered a plague, it's not surprising that garlic came into the common use for this purpose. Other means were often employed to hold disease at bay. One theory of why garlic repels vampires is born of the similarity between vampires and mosquitoes both of which bite their victims and drink their blood. Both of which can spread disease through their bites. One of the most often used weapons against a vampire is a cross or a crucifix. The crucifix, which includes the figure of the crucified Jesus, is primarily a Roman Catholic symbol. It's said that a crucifix has more power than a cross, but again, in both cases, its energy is largely dependent on how strongly the person holding it believes in its symbolism. In traditional lore, the crucifix will burn the skin of the vampire when pressed against him and mark the flesh of a person who has been bitten but not yet fully transformed. Additionally, in some legends, the crucifix or cross will steal the creature's source of strength, rendering him less powerful. Some stories claim that crosses or crucifixes hung on a door will keep a vampire from entering a room, or that a cross placed on a gravesite will render entering the grave impossible. Perhaps the best thing about crosses is that they're easily improvised using items such as candlesticks, swords, and random bits of wood anything that can replicate its crossed positioning. Another is holy water. As one of the primary symbols of life, water retains its power as a spiritual and physical cleansing mechanism. Revenants who are no longer among the living or the dead have little use or respect for water. 
used in many religious ceremonies such as baptisms and absolution rites. Holy water, which is blessed and made sacred, is believed to have special powers and uses. Among them is the ability to repel most unholy creatures, including vampires. Because holy water is so pure and blessed, it's said to burn the flesh of demons, like acid burns human flesh, causing extreme pain and peeling burns. In the case of newly created revenants, this could prove fatal. Throughout vampire lore, when bodies of suspected vampires were exhumed, holy water was often used in the rituals meant to keep the undead from rising. In the same vein, it was also sprinkled atop a grave or over a coffin to prevent the creature's inevitable return to its sanctuary. Over the centuries, there have been a number of scholars, historians, chroniclers, experts, and folklorists who specialize in the study of vampires and revenants. Some of these individuals have dedicated their lives to learning, revealing, and debating the undead, basing their opinions and studies on everything from folklore to alleged accounts of vampirism to serial killers to modern-day blood fetish practices. Though many have brought to light legends surrounding bloodsucking revenants, there are a few who've staked their reputations and given us a more well-rounded view of the vampire. 1. Leo Alitius A Greek Catholic scholar of the mid-1600s, Alitius was one of the first historians to establish a connection between vampires and Greek history. Alitius's work was one of the first examples of the Catholic Church's acceptance of vampires as a reality. 2. Giuseppe Davanzati In response to waves of vampirism hysteria in Europe, Italian Archbishop Davanzati published an influential treatise in 1744 denouncing the vampire phenomenon as hysteria and delusion. He became known as a leading authority on vampirism within the Catholic Church and throughout Europe. 3. Antoine Augustine Calmet French Benedictine monk Calmet was among the first clerics to address vampirism and its relationship with witches and demons in his 1746 treatise on vampires and revenants, which lent a significant element of credence to their existence. 4. Franz Hartmann During the early 1900s, Hartmann noted German physician and occultist of the era wrote of widely distributed true incidents regarding vampires. Hartmann was an originator of the concept of psychic vampirism, explaining that while vampires didn't consume human blood, they did consume human energy and life force. 5. Montague Summers no list of vampirologists would be complete without Montague Summers. Despite Summers' notoriety as an expert and author of several vampire studies beginning in 1928, he's also known as an opinionated eccentric, and today it's generally accepted that he replaced careful research with often fanciful embellishments. Six. 
Raymond T. McNally, and Roddy Florescu. The dynamic duo of vampirism, McNally and Florescu, researched the origins of Stroker's Dracula and formulated the first theories that Dracula was based on the exploits of Vlad Dracula, a concept that has come under fire since its inception in 1972. McNally is also the author of Dracula Was a Woman in Search of the Blood Countess of Transylvania, in which he explores the myths, realities, and horrors attributed to the notoriously bloodthirsty killer, Bathory. 7. Elizabeth Miller A University of Newfoundland professor, Miller is internationally recognized as one of the world's leading experts on Vlad Dracula, Bram Stoker Ernest Dracula, and vampire history and lore. She has written dozens of articles and six well-respected books including Dracula, The Shade and the Shadow, Reflections on Dracula, Dracula, Sense and Nonsense, and A Dracula Handbook. A vampire hunter or vampire slayer is a character in folklore and fiction who specializes in finding and destroying vampires and sometimes other supernatural creatures. A vampire hunter is usually described as having extensive knowledge of vampires and other monstrous creatures, including their powers and weaknesses, and uses this knowledge to effectively combat them. In many works, vampire hunters are simply humans with more than average knowledge about the occult while in others, they are themselves supernatural beings having superhuman abilities. Toshihiko Kamiyama, Japan Japan's ancient capital of Kyoto was in a state of turmoil during the 15th century as various samurai groups battled for control of the city. Amid the chaos arose a formidable vampire samurai named Hosokawa Katsumoto. Katsumoto turned many of the best samurai and set up a seemingly impregnable fortress along the Kamo River east of the city. During the day, samurai loyal to Katsumoto guarded his palace. At night, Katsumoto led a vampire army out of the fortress searching for blood. The panicked nobles, in danger of losing their city to the undead, turned to the only person capable of stopping the vampires, Toshihiko Kamiyama, the greatest samurai of his time. Kamiyama was a legend in Kyoto for his bravery, honor, and skill with the sword. At the height of his powers, he had abruptly retired to live a life of monastic devotion at a Shinto temple in the mountains. Representatives of the nobles journeyed to the temple and pleaded with Kamiyama to help. At first, Kamiyama was reluctant, but he finally agreed on the condition that he be allowed to train his own recruits at the temple without any outside interference. Kamiyama reasoned that fresh recruits would be more teachable than veteran samurai. After selecting 20 of the most promising young martial artists, Kamiyama spent countless hours tutoring the men among the maple and ash trees and the bird songs of the mountain temple. Kamiyama worked his charges on sword fighting arts and conditioning, and he often had them spar with blindfolds to get accustomed to the art of night fighting. After a year of training, Kamiyama and his team were ready. They journeyed out of the mountains to Kyoto, established quarters in the mansion of a noble, and prepared their assault. They boldly slipped into Katsumoto's compound at night, 
when the vampires were out hunting. After killing the civilian guards, Kamiyama and his men changed into the dead guard's armor and waited for the vampire's return. When Katsumoto and the vampires returned, full from a night of feeding, Kamiyama and his men set upon them. They slashed and destroyed scores of vampires and took a few casualties as well. During the fighting, a fire broke out in the compound when a candle ignited some textiles. Katsumoto escaped through a network of secret tunnels. Kamiyama chased him down and they had an epic sword battle as the compound burned around them that is still considered the greatest sword fight ever staged. The fight ended only when Katsumoto fell through a burning floor. Nobody was ever found and rumors persist that he is still alive to this day. Over the next several years, Kamiyama and his men systematically eradicated vampires from Kyoto. The wars that had devastated Kyoto came to an end and people slowly returned to the city. When the conflict was over, Kamiyama returned to the mountains and the ascetic lifestyle of a Buddhist monk. Sightings of him were rare. He reportedly died in 1533 at age 100. Kamiyama destroyed an estimated 1200 vampires in Kyoto. John Red Jack Avero, United States. Red Jack Avero was born to John and Helen Avero in Tennessee in 1811. John was a hunter and trapper and Red Jack, so named for his red hair, often accompanied him on expeditions into the wilderness of the Shenandoah Mountains. As a teen, Red Jack befriended the local Chickasaw Indians and learned from them how to track and hunt vampires. Red Jack grew increasingly restless in the small Tennessee community and in 1836 traveled to Texas to aid in the revolution, a popular cause among many Americans. He later enlisted in the US Army and fought in the Mexican-American War. One night, the troops in Red Jack's platoon were sleeping in the desert north of Mexico City when they were attacked by a pack of vampires. After morning broke, Red Jack discovered a silver mine nearby, went inside with nothing but a sword, and came out holding the heads of several vampires. Red Jack took his vampire fighting skills west after the war and hired himself out to clear gold and silver mines of vampires. He was well rewarded for his expertise and after a few years was able to open a saloon in the rowdy Barbary Coast area of San Francisco. But vampire slaying was never far from Jack's mind. In 1858, he left San Francisco for Washington DC to help the US government with the creation of the Vanguard, the precursor of the FVZA. Red Jack's work was interrupted when the Civil War broke out in 1861. So from 1861 to 1865, he served in the Union and helped troops wipe out packs of vampires from the woods of Virginia to the plantations of Georgia. Red Jack struggled with a host of demons throughout his life, including alcohol and gambling. In fact, it was Jack's gambling debts that caused him to turn down an offer to join the newly minted FVCA after the war and instead took a lucrative job with a touring Wild West show. Red Jack's drinking worsened during the show's 1870 tour of Europe. That winter, he was stumbling back to his hotel in Vienna, Austria after a night of drinking when a pack of vampires ambushed and killed him. It's doubtful the vampires knew that their victim had killed over 4,000 of their kind during his lifetime. 
12-string Digby, England. As London grew rapidly in the 17th century, packs of vampires became a major problem along the wooded roads radiating from the city. Vampires on horseback would burst from well-hitting bases near the roads and attack stagecoaches and lone riders. The vampires typically chose lonely areas of woodland like Hunslev Heath where the roads to Bath and Exeter crossed. They targeted stagecoaches and the postboys who carried the mail. Sometimes the vampires drank the blood of the victims, sometimes they turned them. English efforts to fight the vampires mostly met with failure. The vampires changed bases frequently and fought a kind of guerrilla warfare for which the English troops were ill-prepared. Stagecoaches and postboys took to avoiding nighttime travel altogether, a move that severely crippled commerce and communication between London and other cities. In desperation, the English decided to fight fire with fire and enlist the help of a notorious convict named Digby Woof. Woof was a flamboyant character who earned his nickname for the habit of decorating his breeches with 12 lengths of colored string. He had spent most of his adult life as a highwayman or coach robber. His skills on horseback were unmatched and he eluded the law for many years until his arrest in 1681. English officials reasoned that an experienced highwayman like Digby would be the ideal foil against these roving vampire packs. So they offered him a choice, 20 years at London's notorious Newgate prison or service as a vampire slayer for his majesty, Charles II. As with the legendary Australian Machete Jim, 12-string Digby chose freedom and over the next several years, he led a group of English troops against the vampires. On occasion, Digby and his men hid amongst the trees, lying in wait for the vampires to attack a passing coach. At other times, he would go undercover as a passenger on a well-appointed stagecoach. When the vampires attacked, he laid waste to them with stunning speed. Nighttime travel around London became relatively safe again. Charles II met Digby at Whitehall Palace in London, and he became a fixture in social circles, where he developed an affection for married women. Even a bout of venereal disease didn't stop him from pursuing the wives of prominent Brits. Unfortunately for him, one of his conquests was married to a notably jealous lieutenant colonel who discovered the affair and challenged Digby to a duel at Hogsden Fields. Normally, Digby was an accurate shot with a pistol, but he was weakened with VD and missed his first shot. The lieutenant colonel was not so inaccurate, and Digby fell. Mortally wounded with a gunshot to the chest, he bled to death in the snow, and England had lost its greatest vampire hunter, a man who killed more than 1,000 bloodsuckers in his time. Well, there you go, folks. That is part two to our Vampires of Myths, Legends, and Lore episode. 95% of the information was from Aubrey Sherman's Vampires, the Myths, Legends, and Lore book. So if you enjoyed today's episode and the previous episode, please do yourself a favor and go pick up this awesome vampiric gem. 
I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did, but don't worry. The guys will be back for next episode as we cover Bethlehem Royal Hospital, also known as St. Mary Bethlehem, a psychiatric hospital in London. Its famous history has inspired several horror books, films, and TV series, and is Europe's first and oldest institution to specialize in mental illnesses. But again, thank you guys so much. Please, if you can, rate and review us on iTunes. You guys can also add us on Instagram at Weird History Retails Pod, where we post pictures and videos about subjects that we cover on our episodes. But again, thank you guys so much. And as always, we are the Weird History Retails Podcast.